Sarah, have you ever noticed that your appearances on this show directly correspond to how bad and confusing the COVID situation is? <laughs> yes, I do notice that because I still haven't forgotten when you set the Jaws theme song to me coming on. <laughs> <laughs> Might have to do it again. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Hey there, Full Stack listeners. This is Jeremy Siegel continuing our special series on the coronavirus outbreak. And just because we have Sarah Overmall on doesn't mean we need all that uh, scary music. We can have fun, happy music with, with fun piano. <laughs> Today, we are talking with Sarah about some scary stuff, uh, the Delta variants of, of the virus. But if you stick around, we got some good vaccine news. Full approval could be on the horizon. Here's our conversation. So given that you're here, Sarah, um, that means we are going to be talking about some not so fun stuff with the virus. Um, let's let's start with the Delta variant. It has been the source of a lot of frustration, confusion, fear over the past couple weeks for people, especially after the CDC released its new mask guidance recently calling for vaccinated people in areas with high transmission to mask up indoors because of evidence suggesting that you can still spread the virus if you have one of those super rare breakthrough cases, even if you're fully vaccinated. Um, There have been a lot of questions out there because of this new data, some misinformation, um, arguments, I think, between people uh, about the efficacy of, of vaccines in light of all of this. Uh, since you know this so well, uh, just tell me, what do we know at this point about the variant and the vaccines? Well, absolutely. Confusion has abounded um, and it hasn't been helped by what some people have seen as, uh, you know, the administration going back and forth on recommendations about masks and things. So what we do know about the Delta variant is that it is more transmissible. It is potentially more severe, especially for younger people who would not have gotten serious cases from other variants. Mm -hmm. And we know that it accounts for the vast majority at this point of cases in America, more than 80 percent. And so when it comes to breakthrough infections, which has been, I think, a source of a lot of alarm in the past week and a lot of misinformation. We know that uh, the vaccines are not quite as effective against the Delta variant as they are against other variants, but are still very effective. And when someone does have a breakthrough infection, they are finding that the vast majority of the time, it's a very mild uh, infection. Senator Lindsey Graham, for instance, just recently tweeted that he had a breakthrough infection and that it felt like a sinus infection. And if he hadn't been vaccinated, that it might have been different. So that's what we know so far about that. What about um, hospitalizations and deaths? Because at the end of the day, that's kind of what like vaccines are, are most important for, right? Um, th- the vaccines are still good at, at preventing that with the Delta variant, right? So we know so far that these vaccines are very effective at preventing hospitalization and death, whether from the Delta variant or from others. The vast majority of hospitalizations and deaths that we are seeing right now are among unvaccinated people. Uh, So the Delta variant has spread very far, and especially in states with lower vaccination rates, primarily southern states. Uh, That is where we are seeing uh, most of the spread and some of the pressure on hospitals and public health resources. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at data here compiled by the Kaiser Family Foundation of states reporting breakthrough cases, and they're showing that breakthrough cases 
are, are well below 1% for vaccinated people. And then for hospitalizations and deaths, the rate among vaccinated people is almost 0%. But despite that, I mean, we've seen a whole lot of headlines about breakthroughs, reporting on hospitalizations and cases in vaccinated people over the past week or so. If you had to put those headlines into context next to the data for someone who might be freaking out at the moment, like with all the news we've heard about Delta and breakthrough cases and the new mask guidance, like if you had to put that into context for someone, how would you do that? And I'm not necessarily saying, like, calm people's fears here, but just give us, you know, some reason. No, it's it's a great question because absolutely every time that there is a headline about one person, uh, everyone sees that and thinks that this speaks to a much larger problem, I think, than than it actually is. And like, I, like you said, you know, we don't want to say that these aren't concerns, but what health officials have said is that we, are, we will see more breakthrough infections because we're seeing more vaccinations, and there will be a few. That doesn't mean that the vaccines aren't working. It's just that we have a large pool at this point, hundreds of millions of people across the world of people who are getting the vaccine and then getting exposed to other variants and things. So there's just a higher chance maybe of a breakthrough infection. The other thing I would say to kind of put the data in context is to compare this a little bit to the early concerns about the Pfizer vaccine and allergic reactions or the Johnson and Johnson vaccine and blood clots specifically in women of a certain age that those were very rare instances and they were tracked but ultimately those vaccines were deemed safe and effective and that they were so rare that it was very unlikely that it was going to happen to the average person. I think another thing to consider here is that this isn't a breakthrough infection isn't a risk the way that um, a blood clot is. We know so far that it is very unusual that people who have breakthrough infections will still have a serious case. And so if we think about this in the context of this past year and how many deaths we've had and how many long-haul COVID uh, survivors we've had, to get a breakthrough infection that feels like a cold is still better than to not be vaccinated and and get the whole deal. <laughs> hmm. But the fear from the CDC at this point is that you do, if you do have one of those breakthrough infections that feels like a cold, you might be able to still spread it like someone who's unvaccinated. So that's why in areas with high transmission, you should be masking up indoors. Yes, 100%. That That is absolutely true. And that's something that they have also tried to communicate this past week that continuing, continuing with this theme of um, alarm and some misinformation, people took that to mean that any vaccinated person can spread the virus like any unvaccinated person. Like you said, that's a possibility, but there's far less risk when someone is vaccinated, even if they are um, dealing with a breakthrough infection. But that is why the CDC reversed on suggesting mask mandates. That's why some states and localities have reinstituted mask mandates. But unfortunately, other states and localities that are seeing surges are holding fast and saying these are not things that we need. You mentioned Johnson & Johnson when you were talking about risks and all with vaccines. With a lot of the stuff I've read about vaccines remaining effective against the, the Delta variants, I feel like I almost always see places referencing mRNA vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna. And it makes me wonder, like, what about the people who've gotten Johnson and Johnson? Because I've heard talk about the possibility of, of another shot or things like that. What do we know about Delta and J&J? &J? 
Well, uh, first of all, they have a clinical trial ongoing that they started before the Delta variant reared its ugly head, um, looking at how effective it would be to administer a second dose of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And mm. so data for that, for that so-called booster dose, uh, could come within a matter of days or weeks. They said that it would be around July. Uh, we do know that, you know, it like the other vaccines, um, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is slightly less effective against it, but because its efficacy overall was lower than the other vaccines at, you know, roughly 66% for overall cases, that we're dealing with maybe... Um, a, a bigger question of how long immunity can hold against this and when people would need boosters. So uh, without that data of the second dose, I think it's hard to say just how much it could help to get another shot. I do know that uh, some localities are just forging on ahead. San Francisco has said that it will start to administer Moderna and Pfizer shots to people who got J&J vaccines. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, first one to do that. Hmm. But I think that broadly the federal government is loath to do something like that because it would signal maybe some lack of confidence in the vaccine. And that's that goes for booster shots and, and for Johnson & Johnson specifically. Since you brought up the idea of boosters, is that something that's like being considered, um, you know, not just for boosting the efficacy of of J&J in this situation, but like more broadly for vaccines, including Pfizer and Moderna? Do you think we could see boosters needed down the line? 100 percent. I think that that is eminent. I've talked to health officials who've said that that is eminent uh, privately. But once again, it's this question of confidence. And uh, Anthony Fauci actually alluded to this in a Senate hearing last month where he said that he didn't want talk of boosters to make people who haven't gotten the vaccine yet feel as though it's not effective. And while you understand that argument, the clock is also ticking on making decisions about boosters because it is in some way inevitable. I don't think that anybody really thought that we would be one and done forever. Mm -hmm. We just maybe didn't think it would come so soon. Um, And so the question that is being discussed right now in the administration is how do we do this? How do we prioritize people? The general understanding is immunocompromised people would be first. So that'd be people who have had organ transplants, who are undergoing cancer chemotherapy, who are on autoimmune medicines who would be first in line for booster shots. Uh, the problem is that there's already going to be sort of this political, this politically thorny issue about administering extra doses or additional doses, doses I should say, to Americans when there are millions of people abroad who haven't even gotten a first dose. Mm. The World Health Organization on Wednesday actually said that it wanted everyone to stop administering booster shots until more doses were given to other countries that are waiting for their first wave. Well, then I guess you add on top of that, like the financial end of this. I mean, I know like vaccines and all this are are super regulated, but I think people can't help but thinking about the fact that, you know, Pfizer or Moderna, like they're set to benefit, I don't know, billions of, of dollars probably from their being boosters. Like how do you balance, you know, the need for a legit booster shot with the obvious financial incentives for for pharma companies here? Right. No, it's it's a really good question because these could very well become a regular part of our lives, somewhat like flu vaccines, although those aren't exactly high profit. Um, you know, Pfizer and Johnson and Johnson and Moderna have made promises to keep these affordable or at cost during the pandemic. But if this becomes something that is a fixture in our lives for years to come, absolutely, we might be held, you know, to their pricing standards. One thing that other countries are trying to do to both 
meet the current need that is happening, but also to answer those questions as they come, um, is setting up manufacturing hubs in other countries where these pharmaceutical companies would have to hand over certain technology so that, say, South Africa could begin producing those vaccines themselves or India. Um, Why that is so important is that that would be, you know, keeping it at cost, at least for those countries. And Mm -hmm. then for Africa, Africa has never had pharmaceutical manufacturing on the continent and has always relied on the rest of the world to send them these medicines and vaccines. So if they're able to make them themselves, that would be a huge step. But that's at least a year in the making. So we're talking about not a step for the pressing need right now, but for the idea that we will need boosters for years to come. Mm. All of these shots, Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, all of these vaccines that are approved right now in the U.S. Authorized, yeah. (laughs) Authorized, yeah. Emergency authorization. Maybe I'll have to stop reminding you of that soon. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's actually what I was going to ask about. The vaccines are currently being used under emergency use authorization, not full approval, which has been a source of hesitancy for some People, But you have new reporting looking at when we might see actual full approval for at least one of those shots, Pfizer. Um, when could that be? What would that mean? And, and also, what's the difference between full authorization and emergency use? Totally. I'll, I'll get excited when I have to stop saying authorizing, authorizing, um, <laughs> because there, there is a difference. Um, yeah, and yeah. so that full approval for Pfizer, at least, which filed just a few weeks ahead of Moderna in May, um, that could come in a matter of weeks. We mm. could see that by early September. And that is generally in line with what the administration thought would happen. But they are trying to accelerate that amid these Delta variant surges and concerns about more variants. Um, And so the difference between approval and authorization, um, emergency use authorization can only happen in the context of a public health emergency. And so if this emergency ends, and that's, you know, a government call to say that it has ended, then that authorization ends. Mm. And FDA also is making that decision on a lower bar than full approval. So they're basically making the decision on does this have promise for being beneficial and does that promise outweigh the risks? Whereas full approval is the FDA putting its stamp on and saying this is safe and effective. And so that higher bar of approval takes months. That means that um, in the months since Pfizer and Moderna filed for authorization last year and the last few days of 2020, um, they've been tracking all this data about how long immunity lasts, if there are side effects that didn't pop up at first, uh, you know, different populations that might have different responses, anything like that. Those questions are going to be answered in that paperwork they've filed with the FDA. So to your question about whether this could help with confidence, according to a Kaiser Family Foundation poll, it might. They said that um, 30% of unvaccinated vaccinated people say that full approval would help them um, be encouraged to get the vaccine. But that was also couched in um, comments from the pollsters saying that two thirds of those same respondents didn't totally understand the difference between authorization and approval. So this very well could join the club, right? (laughs) Yeah, it's good company. Um, So, so, you know, we have to take that, you know, with a grain, it could just be people Mm -hmm. in the pollsters words, looking for a proxy for safety, looking for some assurance. Um, So I don't know that we'll actually see sort of this tidal wave after approval, but that will help with certain um, logistical issues. So for instance, President Joe Biden said that all federal workers are required to get the vaccine or be subject to routine testing, uh, the Department of Defense doesn't fall under that. They would have to do this themselves. And what they have said is they are not inclined to require 
active military to get this vaccine when it's not yet approved. They do require other vaccines. Um, active military have to get an anthrax shot, which is not, you know, available to you and us. Mm-hmm. Um, but they can't, they don't want to um, require them to get something that isn't approved. So that's one way that this could actually help out a lot. Hmm. I guess also there are probably like a number of, of companies across the country are probably having similar thinking to the Department of Defense, where they're like, I don't want to require my employees to get something that's, you know, just emergency authorized, but maybe once it's fully approved, they might do that. Yes, yes. I could see, you know, this being a watershed moment for that, because there have been a lot of major corporations moving towards requiring it. But the case is much easier when this is an approved therapy. All right, that is our show for this week. I'm Jeremy Siegel, and big thanks to Sarah Overmall for joining me. I say it a lot on this show, but if you didn't know it, Sarah Overmall co-authors a health newsletter that comes to your inbox every weekday morning. It's called Politico Pulse. You can find that at politico.com slash newsletters, along with a bunch of other newsletters, including a bunch of other health ones, uh, Future Pulse, Global Pulse. We've got it all Check it out, politico.com slash newsletters. Also, subscribe to this podcast, Pulse Check, if you haven't yet. And if you can, leave us a rating and review. That'll help new people find the show. Pulse Check's senior editor is Raghu Manavalan. Our senior producer is Jenny Ament, and our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you soon.